the Port Authority st- staff had uh, uh, recommended approval of the contract for the United Hangar expansion. And then at that point, a third-party representative uh, hired by United, um, recommend, who's in communication with uh, Chairman Sampson's staff, uh, communicated to United that he wanted that route reinstituted. It actually had been a route during uh, uh, the Continental days before the merger. Mm-hmm. Th- and then they had a very interesting dinner between Jeff Smizek, the CEO of United, and two senior executives uh, who worked with him, uh, where the uh, chairman, Sampson, once again reiterated his request to have this route. Um, the, then the matter came up for consideration by the Port Authority at a regularly scheduled meeting. And the chairman pulled it from the agenda, and he communicated to the third-party agent that uh, he was pulling it due to his displeasure that the route had not been reinstituted. That information information was communicated to the CEO, Smizek, and he then personally approved the route. Thereafter, the uh, hangar expansion was uh, approved. Um, the route then, uh, the chairman then used the route for approximately 18 months. The route lost United $945,000. Uh, chairman Sampson was uh, indicted over this matter, or uh, resigned, uh, unrelated, and was later indicted and pled guilty to corruption under this matter. So there's a well-known legal phrase or saying that bad facts make bad law. Mm-hmm. And these were very bad facts because we have CEO involvement in the bribery scheme uh, itself. So, um, but if I could maybe pick up on a couple of points or take them further, the uh, we were talking before uh, we went on air, and, and you said this was a bit of a head scratcher, and I have to uh, say you're very charitable in your description because there was a, a criminal matter which was resolved via a non-prosecution agreement in July. And in that NPA, there was no reference to any criminal statute, which United may or may not have violated. And in the Securities and Exchange Commission cease and desist order, there was reference only to the Securities and Exchange Act of 1934. There was no reference to the FCPA. There was no reference to any other statute. And the Securities and Exchange Commission found that United had failed in two ways under the uh, Securities and Exchange Act of 1934. The first was there was a violation of the company's internal controls by CEO Smizek when he uh, ordered that the route be reinstated. That violation was, the internal control rather, was the company's code of conduct. And this is the first time I can recall the code of conduct uh, being recognized separate and apart as an internal control, which could be violated, and we can kind of talk about the implications of that. Yeah. The second part was there was a uh, finding of a lack of internal controls, and there was a lack of controls around the route re- uh, 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 reinstituting, route instituting and or reinstituting process. United did have a protocol they went through, but apparently that was not formalized in writing, and did not have any control mechanisms around it. So we have the anomaly of both a violation of an internal control and a lack of an internal control as the basis of an SCC order. Yet, uh, if, if we were reading this as an FCPA case, we would simply read to 
the section of the FCPA which speaks to uh, the accounting provisions, books and records, and internal controls. But here we don't have that. We only have the 34 acts. So now we have, as you said, an anomalous legal theory that violation of an internal control in the form of a code of conduct and lack of an internal control now violates the 34 Act. Yeah, I have to admit that, um, you know, once you get into the nuances of this, this is really, it's, I guess it gets a bit meta, for lack of a better word, that the code of conduct typically would be part of a company's control environment. So now, are we saying that the control environment is a control unto itself, which is uh, weird, to put it mildly? Um, I guess what the SEC has done here is basically said that if you violate a company's policies, we're going to interpret that as a, viola a civil violation of securities law, which I'm sure would give a lot of general counsel and chief compliance officers a heartburn. Um, because, okay, if it's this, what about other potential violations? Um, you know, I just, I wonder where this came from. Um, why this case? And, you know, it almost looks like clearly we knew something stinky happened here. I mean, this was really untoward what United CEO had done and the Port Authority chairman. Uh, so we had to figure out some way to get them somehow, and therefore short-circuiting your internal controls to get a bribe in the form of a flight uh, created and then not recording what that really was, which was a bribe, you know, let's just say that's a books and records violation of the 34 Act that kind of looks like the Domestic Corrupt Practices Act if we had that kind of a law. I mean, I guess that's what's happened here, but it's weird. Well, you even took it a step further because you, you suggested a books and records uh, violation, and, and they didn't claim books and records. They only said internal controls. And so let me, uh, Mike Volkoff and I years ago used to go round and round where he would say, if you create a control and then someone violates it, that's going to be the basis of a legal enforcement and action. And I said, no, no one would do that. Company policies are just company policies. You can't create criminal or civil liability by a violation of an eternal policy. Well, I was wrong and he was right. Yeah, here we are. Here we are. But now let's talk about, though, or perhaps explore rather, code of conducts. Those are not, um, those are uh, in many ways aspirational, but they include things like every company I've worked for had an anti-harassment, anti-discrimination, mm -hmm. uh, anti-competitive uh, 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 actions were in their codes, certainly anti-corruption. There's a... a a large number of things that are talked about in broad terms, which then pol specific policies and procedures fill out. Every company I know has in their code of conduct, ye shall not pay bribes. That's yep. a standard language, but it's also ye shall not engage in anti-competitive conduct, which violates the Sherman Antitrust Act as well. And if that's now a basis for the violation of the 1934 Act, because that's a violation of internal controls, um, I've just not seen that before. You know, I struggle with this because I, I personally believe a good code is brief, super brief, and very general and guiding principles about how to do the right thing, period. Um, I always point to Boeing as a great example. Their code of conduct is a page, 
and it's very simple, broad principles. But of course, Boeing is highly regulated. After you read that code, there are a battalion of procedures and more specific guidance that Boeing gives to its employees and various things such as anti-bribery and anti-harassment and OFAC export controls and whatnot. But Boeing gets it that you don't whack people over the head with a four-inch thick code of conduct right at the get-go. You give them something that basically says, be a good person, don't bribe, don't cheat. If you see something that's wrong, speak up. And you know, there's a couple of other principles. So if that's what we want, then to hold out violations of that in very specific ways, it's almost like a bit of a gotcha. I can't really say that I like the way the SEC handled this, although something somewhere had to be done because what United did was, you know, clearly that was cheesy. I mean, the CEO got fired for this. It was misconduct. There's no question. But I, I just I struggle with how this is going to work if you scale it up in practice. No, you're you're absolutely right. And the questions you raised, uh, I don't see any easy answers for. But if we maybe played it out even further, and the thing that I think really surprised me when I started researching this issue was the the non-prosecution agreement from the Department of Justice. You you don't issue an MPA if there's no legal criminal violation. There had to have been something there. And since it's not listed in the documents, I don't know what it is. This came out of the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of New Jersey. Um, and if you read it, it, it reads just like an NPA in an FCPA case. There are the facts. And then there's the agreement to... Um, implement a compliance program, it, the same as you would see on, on um, Schedule C or Attachment C. Here it's Attachment B. And then there's a commitment to uh, report on the implementation of the compliance program going forward for a period of, uh, I believe, two years. So it almost reads like an NPA from an FCPA case, yet there is no language which would tell us what the criminal violation was. And if there was a criminal violation, um, where does the H memo fit into all this? Or as Sally yeah. H would call it, individual accountability. Well, you know, I was thinking also, um, aside from is this a legal, a valid legal theory of enforcement or not, let's just say that it is. Um, okay, so what would a compliance officer have to think about here? You know, what would really went wrong was when the former CEO of United, uh, Mr. Sizik, when he deliberately overrode company policies to make this South Carolina flight happen. So really what we're getting at is this is a problem of management override of internal control, which is the third rail of discussion about internal control. We all know that it can blow a hole in any big scheme that you have, and nobody quite knows how to deal with it uh, because managers are typically, you know, management override implies that senior managers are trampling over things, and somebody's going to have to catch that. So how would you get a p compliance program that really would try and tackle that head-on? Um, I don't know this for a fact, but I would love to know what sort of training United was giving employees. Like, did they understand that a violation of company policy could maybe lead to civil liability under securities law? Now, clearly, since you and I aren't quite sure how that happened, I can't imagine that lower-level executives at United fully understood that what was going on might have been something that they should call out. But maybe so, because Sizek and his two deputies did get fired over this. So, I mean, that's one weird question. 
I guess you would need to have a very strong speak up culture. Um, so you'd have to think about how do you train people to call out the CEO. But I mean, that's a tough, tough thing to get people to feel comfortable to do. Um, and then lastly, I would also think this means that if you do have the speak up culture, the employee seeing this would need somebody to speak to. And if the CEO is the one who's overriding, if you speak to the compliance officer, the compliance officer has to be parallel to the CEO and maybe answering directly into the audit committee or the board. Or does the speak up hotline go directly to the audit committee and bypass the CEO entirely? But you know, it raises a lot of questions about how do you build a strong compliance program that can get around this threat of management override, which is a big, powerful threat that not many companies, I think, have really managed to solve. No, all great questions. And, um, you know, I was so focused on the code of conduct being the internal control by flipping to the override or the third rail, as you called it, uh, the implications really even beyond the CCO up to the audit committee, I think, are, are, are quite profound because how would the audit committee even find out about it in, in almost every company I worked if, if a CEO made what no one believed was a criminal action because of a decision to override a, another business decision, it would never get to the audit committee. Mm-hmm. And the other two questions that roll around in my mind are if this legal enforcement theory sticks, which is a big if in my mind, but if it does um, and are companies then going to have to start self-reporting possible violations like this? Because then, you know, you open the floodgates and everyone and their uncle is going to come running to the Justice Department with saying, well, we violated this policy. So here we go. And, you know, we're, we're self-disclosing. But you wouldn't self-disclose unless there's an actual enforcement risk, which means some SEC officer somewhere is going to have to stand up and give a speech and say that we're going to go after this kind of a risk. And that hasn't happened yet. I don't know that it will happen with the Trump administration coming in, and we've got no idea who's going to be running the enforcement division in six months and what that person might think. Um, but if there is no risk that somebody's going to come after you, then why would you self-report it? But if they do, I mean, you're, you're going to be standing around um, with your pants around your ankles because clearly the United case is already one example and people are going to say, well, why didn't you self-report? You already have this proof it could happen. It's it's a can of worms. Uh, right, and, and uh, I have named this the U.S. Corrupt Practices Act case. Uh, and now do we have a really, in, in, as you started out with, uh, an entirely new cause of action for domestic yeah. corruption cases that... Uh, public companies can be uh, liable to uh, for the SEC. So is we have now a new complete cause of action above and beyond the criminal matter, which neither one of us can divine. You know, I've got one other thought in my head kind of related to this, and I, I didn't necessarily want to bring this up, but I will, is that um, <laughs> if we start doing this, we also need to focus on that there was a domestic official who was corrupt. And there are plenty of people who think that we are about to put a president-elect in office who is corrupt. And he is already, the week that you and I are talking right now is the week that he had this um, exchange with Boeing via Twitter over the new Air Force One contract. He already seems to be browbeating specific companies 
and he'll, Donald Trump will have an awful lot of power to grant favors later on if they do certain things for him. I don't necessarily know how this might lead to people claiming that he is the corrupt official, but you know, you've got to wonder if he starts playing favorites with some companies after he badgers them on Twitter, what about their rivals? Will they start making allegations that there is some sort of corrupt activity going on at the domestic level? I I don't know, but clearly there's a precedent set here that maybe you could try and do that under certain circumstances that I'm pretty sure Donald Trump will allow to come to pass because um, he seems very ham-handed at how to handle companies and business decisions um, now that he's in this role as president in a very different way. But uh, I don't know. That It remains to be seen what might happen here. If, if we're going to have a Domestic Corrupt Officials Act, you know, we've got a d- domestic official right at the top who seems to be begging for an excuse to get into corruption charges. <laughs> well, we will have to uh, uh, not only wait uh, for more information, but we will definitely have to explore that. Matt, this has just been a fascinating discussion, and I can't say that we have any more answers than we collectively started with, but we've got a whole lot of more questions, and uh, we need to communicate that out to our readers and listeners. Absolutely. So, Matt, as always, a pleasure, and I look forward to continuing the conversation with you. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast with Tom Fox and Matt Kelly. I have two requests for you. If you are listening to this podcast on iTunes, if you would rate this podcast, it would definitely help us in our rankings. Uh, The second thing is, if you have any questions that you would like Matt and I to answer on an upcoming podcast, please shoot me an email. We're developing a mailbag list of questions to take up. Uh, My email is tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.